Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Amanda Hinchman talking about everything desktop. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm good. We were just discussing uh, before you joined uh, how hot it is, but apparently my heart is hotter than your heart because you're at like 21 Celsius or so, right? And I'm at like 31 <laughs> Celsius. Oh, my. Well, I just moved up from Florida uh, to Chicago, I mean, and uh, it, it's been a nice change. Uh, we'll see what I say in the winter time, though. That's an actually that's that's actually a good change, right? Because if I'm not mistaken, Florida is really damp, right? Humid. It is. Uh, the humidity is it's more or less like being in a shower all yeah. the time. Uh, and most of the time in the Midwest, uh, it's actually quite the same. The only difference is there's no relief of the ocean. <laughs> but this summer, it's been exceedingly cool. And but and then on the other hand, Chicago is. I mean, I was only in Chicago, I think, once or or maybe twice. Uh, and the only thing it was twice actually. And what I noticed both times was that it was very windy, which I think that's why they call it the Windy City, I guess, right? I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Uh, so it's named the Windy City mostly for its uh, political temperament. Uh, the city is known to swing around uh, from time to time, but it is also quite windy, so I think it's a very, very fitting name. Uh, a couple winters ago, I came through here, and the tunnels and the wind tunnels that are created in downtown uh, quite literally gave me wind rash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember I was staying down there, and you've got these high-rise buildings, and then uh, just just the wind pushing you. But, well, uh, uh, congratulations on the move. Uh, hopefully it uh, works out well for you and you don't miss the, the, the dampness of uh, Florida or the humidity. Uh, thank you very much. So one of the things that uh, you and I kind of met and started to chat about uh, is regarding uh, tornado effects, and we'll get into that in a moment. Uh, but, you know, you started in Kotlin. How, how long ago did you actually start with Kotlin, playing with Kotlin? So I, uh, I started around last October. Uh, I guess it's been almost a year, I mean, in the next uh, coming months. And I, it's been a wild ride. It, it's easily the best decision I've ever made. I have never joined an open source community before, uh, to be quite honest. I was more or less terrified to. <laughs> um, I actually spoke to uh, several coding, uh, several beginning coders, as well as coders my age, and more or less they kind of feel the same. And uh, ever since I've joined Kotlin, I, I could say that I'm somewhat of an evangelist now, but the community is really inclusive, and I, I've found that uh, I brought a coworker to the recent Chicago CUG, the Kotlin user group, and he's a Haskell guy himself. I, I learned Haskell myself at one time, and I had a, I had a difficult time with it. <laughs> but uh, I took him to Kotlin, and he said, a lot of this stuff is really awesome. It almost feels like they're taking from, Kotlin, or from Haskell, and I said, well, there's a lot of ideas from that, and Haskell is a great language in itself but the community behind it is uh, not as supportive. I almost feel like since it was created by mathematicians, uh, 
perhaps they were in their own worlds. And I feel like that's a huge difference with Kotlin. Uh, the language is growing quickly. And in the last week or so, I've seen a lot of new users in Tornado FX. And that's something I was really excited about. I can't wait to be back on regularly once I'm done with this uh, settling in. Yeah. Well, and I think it's fantastic. Like, you know, kudos to you that you started uh, a year ago and you're actually so more or less around the anniversary of when you started Kotlin, you will be speaking at Kotlin Conf, which is really awesome. And, and we can talk about uh, your talk there a little bit later on, but kudos for that. And and I also, it's really wonderful to hear that the community, you felt very inclusive and open because that's one of the things that we've always wanted to to have, right? And as it grows, it, it, I, I, I'm not going to say it becomes harder, but it, it, it well, it does. It, it becomes harder to make sure that everyone that is participating still has this very warm and friendly, um, welcoming attitude, right? So, um, but it's, but it's very nice to hear. Now, when you got into Kotlin, did you come from Java or because you mentioned that you had learned Haskell as well? Did, did you switch from Haskell or were you doing some Java beforehand? I. Uh, did not start coding until I reached college. Uh, and uh, I'm, that's a really great question to ask. I, I would say that Java is probably more of my stomping grounds, but I didn't start coding until I got to college. I was actually really not excited about college, but I knew I needed to go through it. And I had a computer science professor convince me to take a class. And it just... Uh, it was a whirlwind from there. Uh, I did a bit of Android development, and uh, I've done. Uh, I, I had to work every summer, and I had to work throughout the school year because I was on a scholarship. So uh, just between going from places like Prudential to Cisco, and uh, we had a very small school, so we had to develop our own applications, um, and I also specialized in uh, data visualization. So I would say that I have uh, rather a broad knowledge. Um, so when I did learn Haskell, it was for a metaprogramming class that I looked into. And it's quite funny because that's kind of the topic of my talk. But when I first learned it, I hated it so much. <laughs> it was too much magic for me. I mean, I've shied away a little bit from metaprogramming as well or uh or overuse of annotations. I know annotations is just one form of metaprogramming, but I've shied away from it sometimes as well because of too much magic, but it does have its uh, benefits. So when you got into Kotlin, I know that you were active on Tornado FX. And for people that aren't familiar with Tornado FX, that's uh, basically a framework on top of uh, Java FX, which is written in Kotlin. Uh, is that more or less of accurate description of it? It is. Uh, Evan Sicey, uh, he created Tornado FX uh, around 2016. The creation of languages are never on that date. <laughs> I, I actually asked him at one point uh, what brought him to the decision of writing Tornado FX in Kotlin. And he, I, he what I understood that he originally tried to write a Java FX framework in Java, um, but he found that Kotlin 
had some features in the language that allowed him to create higher abstractions for a JavaFX framework, and the you know such as reified generics and uh, DSLs, uh, which are uh, domain-specific languages. And I thought that was really neat at the time. I didn't quite understand what that meant, um, but to translate all that. Uh, Essentially, you're just writing code as you think about it. So I found that over time, I was writing code just about as fast as I was thinking. And of course, this is for desktop applications. And I know that, again, you and I have spoken offline. And you are not, despite, I mean, you said that you did mobile uh, mobile development with Android. And I'm, I don't know if you have, but maybe you've done some web development. You know, nowadays when you speak about desktop, people are like, desktop is dead, which is ironic because then everyone's like, oh my God, I love the, the cool desktop applications on, on Mac OS, right? But yeah, desktop is dead. Everything should be mobile. Everything should be web. Now, from my understanding, you don't like that, right? Yeah, I. it's quite funny. I've been traditionally a front-end developer right up until the last year. Uh, I I would say... It feels like there's a new framework coming out every single year, and it's revolutionary. Um, and I would say that I've developed JavaScript fatigue over time, and at the moment, I can't I can't even look at it anymore without feelings of dread. <laughs> uh, so a lot of companies, uh, for example, when you're interviewing with them, uh, they would rather have you not interview with JavaScript because they consider it to be a weak language. Um, it's not very well, it's not typed to begin with. And asides from the asynchronous features that JavaScript has, uh, I mean, frankly, JavaScript was never meant to be taken to where we have stretched it to. And when you're working with a framework, before you even start the language, you have roughly 2,000 lines of code. For example, if you use Angular or React, you have 2,000 lines of code in your project before you even start writing your code. So frankly, it's over-engineered and really bloated. And oftentimes in web development, I found that I was fighting the framework more than solving the problem that I was trying to solve. And oftentimes I would lose sight of what it was that I was trying to do in the first place. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, like, this is exactly something that uh, I was encountering yesterday. I'm, I'm doing some project and we were d using some uh, lambdas with AWS, uh, which is, mm -hmm. you know, essentially it's, I have a small little line of code. I, I, put, I, I make this lambda and automatically everything happens, right? And I opened up this project and I'm like, there's like, you know, a hundred files of Terraform, uh, which is <laughs> configuring AWS, configuring gateways, configuring Lambda. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, I've got more code dealing with infrastructure than I have actually trying to fix the problem that it is that I'm trying to fix, right? So I totally get you from the JavaScript point of view you know like i think during the time that we are recording this probably another javascript framework will come out 
and probably <laughs> and probably die at the same time. But I'm scared that this isn't actually only a problem limited to uh, to JavaScript, you know, especially with the cloud providers. Like the cloud providers, you're like, oh, I'm going to use this. And then by the time you start to use it, they've said, oh, you know that you were using this? Well, now we've got something even more cool that, that you should be using. So that fatigue that you talk about is slowly like creeping in all aspects of, of development, unfortunately. It really is. Uh, I remember when I was at Cisco, I back then Docker was new and there wasn't really a standardized way of creating your containers in a certain architecture so that you can create microservices. Uh, I'm, to be honest, I'm not really sure if there is a completely standardized way to do that. <laughs> but there's more of an idea uh, with some companies. In any case, uh, it, a significant amount of time had been spent on working on Docker before we even got to deployment. Yeah. And with mobile, you felt the same as well? Or, or was it just you just don't enjoy mobile development as such? Oh, my. That's the funny thing. So I am traditionally an Android developer. I have taken the time to learn Swift, and I believe both of them are bettered frameworks. Uh, they just uh, have two different uh, cons. So for Android, uh, when I was first learning Android, honestly, I would get very lost in the syntax. And sometimes it just felt like there was, the API is a little rough. Um, I have tried to work with uh, Android with Kotlin, which was kind of exciting. Although to be perfectly honest, uh, the API is still a little rough itself. Uh, Kotlin does make it a little bit easier to realize what it is that you're doing. Uh, so that's definitely one benefit of having less verbose syntax. Uh, but that, honestly, that's why I'm crazy about Tornado FX. I kind of fell back in love with coding after I lost sight with it, uh, mostly because when you're working with Tornado FX, you're not bogged down by mobile or server or web development. Yeah. But I mean, do you, so coming to Tornado FX and desktop development, I, what kind of desktop development are you doing? Is it self-contained applications that are, you know, I mean, at some point you're still connecting to some uh, server-side uh, service, right? In, in, a, in a way, right? Uh, occasionally, yes. Uh, so it's, Quite funny. I I am still a web developer. Uh, I'm, I guess uh, it would be software engineering, full stack sort of deal. But I've always used uh, native desktop development essentially to do the work that I don't want to do. <laughs> I like up what? Until, what? What do you mean uh, with that? So. I feel like a lot of people, regardless of what industry you're in, can relate to this issue that some aspects of your job is not necessarily your job description. So for example, uh, I worked in sales enablement at my last company and I would get a ticket to translate four more languages for a library, which is my job. What is not my job is to copy and paste translations for four hours. 
Right. Uh, it's rather inefficient, and I could feel the arthritis forming in my hands. <laughs> uh, so I spun up a native desktop application to transfer CVS files uh, into the JSON that was needed to uh, spin up the libraries in certain languages. And uh, actually, it's quite funny how I got into Tornado FX. So sales enablement is an exceptionally new industry, and it's also mildly cutthroat. We started out as a content management company, and we were going towards sales enablement in the last few years, and that entails creating our own analytics engine uh, by scraping data from client interactions such as Salesforce, Exchange, and other CRMs. So scraping all that data and writing the algorithms to calculate the likelihood of closing an opportunity is definitely a race. Um, writing live demos for every prospective client is another. There were three and a half of us managing 50 plus uh, business to business clients and each of those clients have thousands of uh, employees under them. So it could be anything from health insurance companies to wealth management to even government contracting. And between three and a half developers, we were incredibly strained. And while giving live demos to prospective clients is a really good sales strategy, it honestly was not maintainable for us. And unfortunately, every time we spun up a library, it took an average of three, three hours Per library and when you start doing it a couple times a week uh, I just thought it was rather pointless mostly because it's the same product every time just with different colors and different modules so essentially you were creating tools to just do away with the mundane and the tedious parts of your actual job right absolutely uh, and to be fair at that point uh, being that we were so stretched so thinly uh, it just kind of felt like we were drowning in work all the time. And while I definitely am lazy and I love having, having code do the work that I don't want to do, uh, it was somewhat life-saving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is a use to it. Yeah. And I know that there's another, um, there's another company that, uh, oh yeah, JetBrains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we kind of do these things, right? <laughs> Making tools to, to get rid of your uh, mundane and repetitive tasks. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, I know exactly where you're coming from here. But that that's actually a good point, right? Because a lot of times, you know, the, the utilities uh, nowadays, you know, as developers, we are always creating little tools to try and help our way of working, right? Uh, and a lot of this obviously ends up maybe like shell scripts and, and command line tools, et cetera. But there's also a place in, in this regarding uh, desktop applications because, you know, I usually wouldn't create a web application, especially, as you say, with, with all the fatigue and all of the options and everything that is in the web development scenario. I'm not going to spin up a web server and a web application to, to, to create a small tool that maybe might not fit the command line interface and may need some kind of UI yeah and and desktop is is actually a very good usage of this right I mean our IDs are desktop applications you know so so why not 
That's true. Uh, you never really hear a lot of people using IDEs online unless they're learning online. Uh, and even then, they're very, very light. Uh, honestly, I think in a world where everyone is literally using web services, uh, it almost feels like, aside from developers becoming generally fatigued of uh, bloated frameworks, uh, a lot of users have lowered their expectations of their uh, application performances. So it's really nice to be able to come back to native uh, desktop development where it's something that you truly own and you can harness the power that is already on your computer. So, I mean, essentially native desktop development, uh, at the very least in the very next step, of maybe what's next is that we could start using it as creating an internal solution and it's so easy and kind of fun to pick up that anyone could get into it while simultaneously automating solutions. Yeah, and there's also the other aspect which is security and I bring this up because I don't know if you know Mike Hearn. Uh, I do. Yeah, so he, he's got this stance that you will never, ever be able to make a web application 100% secure, whereas with a desktop application, you could potentially accomplish that or get very, very close to, to, to absolutely secure, right? Uh, and that's why, for instance, the, the stuff that they do is also all desktop. They don't do anything. They, I mean, by Corda, the company that um, is behind Corda, uh, they're all doing the, the desktop stuff, if I'm not mistaken. At least last time I was talking to him, they were still doing that. Uh, first of all, that sounds amazing. Uh, I've never lived in a world like that, and I would love to see what that would look <laughs> like. <laughs> when I first talked to Mike Hearn, it's really funny. Uh, he was he, he was developing the Graviton browser, which is crazy, by the way. It's, uh, it's a pseudo-browser where you can type in the source of your repository that you wish to spin up, and it spins up the instance, which takes out deployment altogether. And I thought it was huge. He didn't think it was too much of a big deal, um, perhaps because of how the world feels about web versus native at the moment. Um, but he did send me an article initially, and it literally said, it's time to kill the web. And I really, I thought he was crazy. Uh, <laughs> But to be honest, it doesn't sound so crazy now, um, just given the world that we're in. And speaking of security, I had considered a few jobs before moving to Chicago. Uh, one was for a startup in Shanghai. Uh, essentially, they created de development for rest chain restaurants in China. And it's definitely a challenging environment in its own sense um, if you're in rural areas. The internet is likely to go down occasionally, so native desktop development is used there um, to be able to allow workers to be able to continue doing the work they need to do, and then the data simply syncs back up once it's connected. There was another job that I had considered um, for Rocket Software, and unfortunately, uh, they were choosing to use React. Um, to handle mechanical failures on the grounds. Honestly, I don't have words past that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like you mentioned React. That is enough. There, there's nothing more I could potentially say. Like that, that should be it, right? 
that and uh, I mean, you're expecting web development to be reliable for a mechanical failure when the rocket's in space. Um, oh, you actually mean yeah. rocket software? Yeah. All oh, right. I was um, quite literally rocket software. Oh, I thought the, the name of the company because I, I recently did a, a podcast with it with um, it was a company called Rocket Travel. And when you said rocket software, I'm like, is she referring to rocket travel or is it like another company called rocket software? But you actually meant software for rockets, right? Uh, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I grew up the river. Uh, I grew up across the river from NASA. Of course you did. Yes. 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 Which I've actually been there. I, I, yeah. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. We went there on one uh, on, on one of the conferences. Uh, we, we did like a little field trip to uh, to to NASA there. So it was nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. So in in regards to tornado, uh, you did mention also that and, and related to the talk that you're going to give uh, at KotlinConf. What exactly have you been working on? Because you did mention that you've got you kind of like started a new project which is related to Tornado and, and or metaprogramming. I have, and uh, I spent a quite amount of a, quite a long amount of time researching the challenges of what could what could possibly be accomplished. So I guess I should back up for a second and talk about the concept of uh, cross-cutting in itself. So cross-cutting is essentially when you have concerns when you're designing uh, your infrastructure and they're essentially divided and conquered into individual jobs. So for example, if you have a web application and maybe it's for a news site, you might have a different concern separated for logging. You might have another concern separated for user subscriptions, and maybe you have another concern for notifications. But it's a very general concept, and it could apply to so many different things, uh, such as uh, choosing to write your code so that it's readable, or choosing to write your code so that it's not so heavy on your processing. And unfortunately, uh, object-oriented languages such as Java, just the way that the language is naturally structured, uh, sometimes you're forced to choose between one or the other. Um, so this cross-cutting that we're talking about is when you end up with code that is scattering and tangling, and Essentially, you have these sources and these targets, and they end up going to multiple, uh, so a source could go to multiple targets, and a target could go to multiple sources. And what that means in real life is that, for example, if you write a code uh, based on pixel manipulation, and uh, you start with a blank image, you manipulate some pixels, and uh, that renders an image, you have initially wrote very readable code, but the problem is maybe you're loading an image every single time you're iterating through a loop. Yeah. So that's really, really heavy. And you realize that your performance is down and you say, okay, I need to increase the performance. But while doing that, uh, your code becomes very hard to read and all of a sudden, I call it spaghetti code, 
Um, all of a sudden, you're kind of untangling the code in your mind, then fixing the problem, but then tangling it back in just to make sure it's still working. Uh, either way, <laughs> you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So in any case, that's the, that's the idea of cross-cutting. And one way, uh, metaprogramming is a solution to cross-cutting. And because of Java's natural tendencies, um, it's unable to use true metaprogramming for various reasons, but it did achieve aspect-oriented programming, um, which is Java's attempt to tackle cross-cutting. Um, so these aspect-oriented programming uh, is actually something that a lot of us might be familiar with, uh, which is essentially annotations. And those, uh, I don't know if you've ever worked with annotations, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. Spring yep. or something. Yep. But aspect-oriented programming at the moment, uh, definitely, I think, it has achieved a separation of concerns, um, but it's really not true metaprogramming. There are some failures in that aspect. So some of those shortcomings uh, actually might include just the fact that, I mean, there is a reflection API in Java, so you're able to be introspective and analyze your classes, um, allowing you for things like logging, for instance, but unfortunately, you're not able to write code that creates code. Yeah. But going back to AOP and uh, especially like talking about the annotations, one of the, I guess, the counter arguments to this, because obviously it does add a lot of value, right? You know, I mean, if you're thinking about, let's say, even aspects such as logging or auditing or um, authentication, etc. All of this, you could basically annotate your code, uh, let's say with annotations and well, annotate, there's not going to be much more you can annotate it with. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, you put all of these annotations, when, when does it become too much, right? Like I, I have seen, for instance, uh, spring classes, where there are more annotations on the method name, than there mm -hmm. is code in the method. So where where do you draw the line of is this actually helping me remove the spaghetti code <laughs> at the expense of I have now no clue what is happening and more importantly I guess I don't know in what order it is happening or is uh, it actually I don't care what is happening I just know that all of these things happen so what do you think about that like is there, is there a limit or, or just like annotations all the way down? Yeah, there's definitely a limit. Um, it's quite funny you mentioned Spring. I tried Spring Boot recently, which I hear is far less... Uh, it's supposed to be easier than the original Spring framework. Um, I struggled with it really, really hard. Um, I mean, to be fair, it was a project that I did on my own. And uh, I feel like Spring is one of those things that you might want to have a lot of experienced people around you for that. And uh, I, did, I did experience using annotations to the point where it almost matched up the entire class or maybe there were more annotations than my actual method that I was using. And to be quite honest, it was really hard to tell uh, when things were occurring. 
Um, and unfortunately, Spring Boot is rather bloated in its own framework. And it was hard for me to track exactly when events were occurring. Um, so I, I definitely think that aspect-oriented programming in one sense um, maybe only tried to go for one very small aspect of uh, metaprogramming. But that's honestly the furthest, I guess, that you can take with Java, mostly because uh, Java itself is statically typed and also because it's object-oriented programming. Um, there are characteristics to object-oriented programming that kind of pre that prevents true metaprogramming, which is definitely some of the challenges that I'm facing right now with Kotlin. Um, but we can get into that in a little bit. Uh, one of those challenges, for example, in true metaprogramming, it's able to look into any code that it needs to to be able to generate uh, more code in itself. Unfortunately, uh, because Java requires encapsulation and inheritance, uh, frankly, it, true metaprogramming would completely ignore that. In what way? I mean, why? That's a good question. So I don't know if you've tried metaprogramming with Ruby, for example. Um, the idea of metaprogramming is that it should be able to look at any class um, that it needs to look at. Uh, to be able to create the calculations um, of whatever job that it's supposed to be doing. And the idea of inheritance and encapsulation is that there's supposed to be these uh, private classes and also a hierarchy um, that you're supposed to be respecting. And uh, to, my, to my knowledge at the moment, um, the idea of metaprogramming doesn't really include um, being able to respect encapsulation and a hierarchy. So the framework that the or the project is it is it open source right now? I mean, is is this something you're experimenting with, or or is it available? It's something that I'm experimenting with at the moment. Uh, I wanted to start really really small. Um, I do want to say that the reason why I thought about metaprogramming in the first place is because of the original solution that I had thought of with my last company. Um, essentially, salespeople would use a drag-and-drop GUI to create their own dashboards, and they customize it however they like, and that would be spun up into some JSON files and then eventually a JavaScript that we don't have to write. And I thought that was really cool. And I looked into the idea of metaprogramming itself, and it turns out they call it monkey patching, which is the worst form of metaprogramming. It, can't, it does have its uses, definitely. But if Kotlin had the ability to uh, generate its own code, and I think there definitely have been projects that have reached um, areas in that, and I've been meaning to look further into that, but... The, the fact that Kotlin has support for dependency injection and reified generics means that we'll be able to easily pass in other functions since it is a functional language. Um, I am currently uh, looking into creating a testing suite for Tornado FX. Um, I, I'm not sure. 
I mean, testing is really, really important. But when I was first writing testing for this project, uh, to be quite honest, it was really difficult to think about how we're supposed to test user interactions. Um, I've always written tests for algorithms. And data, comparing data is very, very easy to do. Um, keeping track of what a user does is much harder. And uh, recently, I discovered uh, PBT, which is property-based testing. And I wondered if I combined that with uh, generated testing, um, we would be able to have some automatic testing available with Tornado FX um, just to create uh, better validations. I think the language itself does have uh, a sense of validation that you might be able to put in yourself if you required it in your inputs, for example. But unfortunately, I think uh, the best we could do at the moment is either test FX or Kotlin test. You want to kind of combine the, the idea of property-based testing uh, in the context of UIs. So essentially, in a way, not only automating UI testing, but automating the, the inputs of that, the, the input values of the, the UI. Absolutely. Did I get that correctly? Yes. Right. And um, at the moment, what I, the idea that I have uh, in mind, and it definitely will be open source. Um, at the moment, uh, I am testing what I have with my own personal projects. So I'm hoping that I have something super bare bone and anyone that would like to get into it is welcome to get into it, of course. Um, I mean, I, I'm crazy about the whole open source idea. I feel like the the flow of knowledge is really outstanding. Um, yeah, so in any case, the idea that we have at the moment is to have uh, Tornado FXers be able to call this tool, but it, it would be a pseudo-random generated inputs. Um, they would establish what the bounds would be. Um, of course, there are so many different uses for rich user interfaces. Um, so I created a drag and drop GUI in one instance, but other people really love Tornado FX for its uh, components such as tree views and table views and the whole model view and model view item, which allows you to update your UI um, on the fly. There are so many different instances to consider that we're just going to have to start really small and build from there. Um, and to be honest, I feel like that's how Tornado FX in itself kind of works. Uh, Edmund started out with something very basic, and over time, people brought in comments and suggestions such as, you know, this uh, data grid feature is really, really neat. and what I would really love to do with it is pagination. And actually, I said that. And I said, I'll let you know if I come up with a solution for pagination. And this was before I really understood um, how builders worked. And Edmund beat me to it a couple hours later. And he said, that's a really great idea. Um, I just added that to Tornado FX. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was so fast. And I can't <laughs> believe there's a new feature now. Uh, so it's been growing. Uh, it's been expanding a lot. And I really feel like 
that attitude of starting with something basic and other people using it and maybe they have suggestions for improvement, maybe they can contribute to the code themselves um, or maybe they can bring up a really good point and I, I would just love to have it continually grow. And I think that's a, that's a point that is very important but often we forget about because I've even myself sometimes when I'm starting a new project or, or, or a project that I'm currently working on, sometimes I feel overwhelmed thinking, you know, but in order to actually get to a point, it there's a lot I need to do. And I, and I, you know, you forget that just start with something small and then gradually just add things onto it, you know, and don't be put off by the fact that once the, what I want to achieve beyond the minimum, you know, the MVP or minimum viable product, the, the, the ultimate goal is so far to reach that it can often be demotivating. And yet when you look at the majority of very successful projects that in, in the software world and even outside of the software world, right, they started very small. They started with something this is this thing just does this one little thing and now let me add this and let me add that and of course when it's open source you get a few people that actually contribute to it um, and it grows up right so and, and I think it's an important point that often we forget yeah that's a really really good point that you make um, I mean honestly I truly feel like the reason why Kotlin is explosively popular, especially in the last uh, few months. I know there was definitely an explosion after Google announced uh, that Android's official language would be Kotlin. So that was definitely, I mean, perhaps in my view, it's, it's the first explosion, but I almost feel like uh, since I've been on uh, Kotlin Lang channel, the Kotlin Lang Slack itself, uh, I've seen the amount of users go up significantly and it's been really exciting. Um, in any case, I think that having a very strong community is why a lang an open source language can become very strong and very popular. And just having that sentiment, I suppose, having that kind of sentiment within a community, I think is definitely what's going to allow me to overcome that initial fear that I might have mentioned much earlier, just joining an open source community and contributing. Um, I, whenever I met contributors in the real world, uh, I always thought like, wow, I could never do that. Um, I'm not good enough to do that. And when I started uh, with Kotlin and Tornado FX, actually Tornado FX was the first framework that I used with Kotlin. So I learned Kotlin at the same time while going through Tornado FX. Even though I have JavaFX knowledge, you're not required to have that to get started. And uh, I started off asking uh, really stupid questions. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Edmund, Thomas Neal, Carl Walker, uh, Ruckus T. Boom, they, they all had infinite patience for me. And I'm happy to say that now I'm answering questions and um, I occasionally go through documentation and maybe add to that. And uh, I, I'm going to finally be contributing something to Tornado FX. So that's really exciting for me. Um, 
And I think it's wonderful. It's it just it really is because you know it's you started out people other people helping you and now it's it's you know you're the one that's helping others and it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's been honestly the most rewarding experience I've ever had and uh, joining Tornado FX and the Kotlin community is easily the best thing I've ever done. Um, it's quite funny, you know, when I first started with Kotlin, um, I kind of uh, mentioned it to my manager that I thought it was a very cool language and his initial reaction was that, well, you know, new languages are not very supported and uh, sticking to older languages that are well established um, usually have like a plethora of documentation and uh, you know, you're just better off sticking with that. And I didn't have a response to that at the time, but I found in my experience that when you have a community that is extremely active, I mean, Kotlin itself is definitely stronger than Java. I mean, aside from the fact that it's statically typed, that null safety uh, is something that initially, when I first saw null safety, it didn't mean anything to me. And uh, at this point, I think, uh, I've heard in Chicago, uh, server-side development for, has been very, very popular um, for Kotlin users. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, there's quite a few companies using it. Um, there's actually uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, they're definitely huge Kotlin people, and they uh, are... They use like server-side development for Kotlin, and I thought that was really cool. And uh, Pivotal Labs are also crazy about Kotlin, and I think it, at our own company we have uh, Android developers. And to be quite honest, I'm I'm hoping we're going to switch out of uh, Ruby eventually, <laughs> but that would be crazy. I'm not prescriptive. Um, <laughs> it's just a would be nice, maybe in a dream. So we're running out of time, uh, and I know that you're going to be talking about this and a lot more at uh, Kotlin Conf in October, which is only a few months away, right? Yes, yeah, yeah and I'm very excited for it. I still have to get my passport. <laughs> well, please do make sure you get that. Like I will do it this weekend. Awesome. Like, don't don't you know ping me a week before. It's like, uh, Hadi, listen, uh, passport. Um, no, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> I promise. I. That is my priority this weekend. Awesome. Well, great chatting with you. Thank you for coming on. And uh, until next time. Yes, that sounds great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed this talk.